In the early morning hours of March 13, 1964, Kitty Genovese parked her car and began walking down the street towards her apartment in Queens. She heard footsteps approaching behind her, and she began to run. She didn't get far before the man caught her and stabbed her in the back. She screamed for help, waking the neighbors, one of whom yelled out the window and scared her attacker away. It was a close call. And had someone gone out to help Kitty, she likely would have lived to tell the tale. But this is an entirely different story. I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. So this week we are covering a very solved case, uh, the murder of Kitty Genovese. So you're welcome to all of those who, like myself, are frustrated by unsolved <laughs> cases. And sorry for those who are like Colby, who are going to boo because it's solved. <laughs> because it's solved. Yeah. yeah, it happens. So to prepare for this case, I just wanted to note that I did read a book and there's a ton of books on this, but... Um, the book that I read was Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America by oh. Kevin Cook. And I also watched a documentary that's called The Witness. Uh, and that was a documentary involving Kitty's brother, Bill. Uh, and then I read various articles and, and whatnot mm. to piece it all together. But I did want to give credit to those sources because they were big ones. So we'll just jump right in unless yeah. anybody has anything they want to talk about. I know Colby already has questions. Yeah, I already had questions. With that opening, I thought, like, did I, did I, like, pass out for a second? Because you said people heard the attacker, heard her scream for help, and then in the next second, like, I blinked and we were like, she would have survived. So I was thinking that something good was going to happen here, but... Did you forget what podcast we do? Yeah, sometimes I think I forget where I am. I do. That's happened a couple times where it's been like, you're telling this great story about these nice people, and then I'm like, oh. And they live happily ever after. Yeah. Until a very specific date. On a very, <laughs> at a very specific time. Yes. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Kitty dies. Oh, I, all right. Yeah. I, and I haven't heard of this. So you said this is like a pretty well-known case, like nationally, this hmm. would be well-known. Yes. So I'm actually really excited because I learned about this case. Um, I want to say it was an undergrad for the first time. I feel like we might have discussed it in law school as well, but. I want to say I probably covered it in a sociology class, and it's so fascinating to me because I'm remembering the things about the case that are wrong. Like, I went into this being like, oh, I want to cover this case because this is what happened. And then when I went back, I was like, oh, that's actually wrong. Okay. And that's like part of the fat, like that's part of what makes it so interesting is that even though the thing that I read probably explained Mm -hmm. that all of those things were wrong, the thing that stuck Mm. with me is the thing that was incorrect. And I think that's probably true. Interesting. I think, yeah, I think that's why this case has, has been so infamous is because it's been, there's been a lot of incorrect information surrounding it that has made it almost more interesting than it really is, but it is still, it is still (laughs) very interesting. So I am Just your pupil. One more question. Is it interesting? <laughs> so it's it's a really interesting case and there's interesting things okay. and interesting theories. 
Interesting. <laughs> and we're going to talk about them right now. Okay, great. So Catherine Susan Genovese, a.k.a. Kitty, was born on July 7th, 1935, to Vincent and Rachel Genovese, who were both Italian-Americans. Uh, Vincent ran Bay Ridge Coat and Apron Supply Company, so he um, supplied aprons for restaurants, and Rachel was a homemaker. Kitty grew up with her family in a brownstone at St. John's Place in Brooklyn, New York, and she was the oldest of five children. She had three brothers, Vincent, William, and Francis, and a sister, Susan. So Kitty was a very well-liked person. She was talkative and popular in school. She did well academically, earning A's and B's. She went to Prospect Heights High, which was an all-girl high school, and um, there were 23 out of 712 seniors that were named class celebrities, and she was one of them. And she was also named Class Cut-Up, which is the 1960s version of Class Mm -hmm. Clown. But um, tis. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, they uh, one of her friends from high school said that Kitty was the it person, mm-hmm. and it was a privilege and an honor to be part of her clique. Aww. She just was very well liked, and she loved New York. And so she was very unhappy in 1954 when her family decided to move to New Canaan, Connecticut. Her mother had witnessed a murder on the street, and oh. her and her father wanted to move somewhere safer. But Kitty didn't want to go. She loved the city. She felt free. She said she'd get a safe job and a safe neighborhood and they could stay in touch. She said she would go visit them in New Canaan and take the train. And they said, okay, you can stay. You can stay. How old was she at this point? She had uh, graduated high school. Oh, okay. All right. So she was 18. A small tidbit of information, um, there isn't really a lot of information on this, but around that same time, Kitty was engaged to a man named Rocco, and the two were married in October 1954. The marriage didn't last long, and the two divorced in 1956. Kitty's brother actually contacted Rocco to ask about Kitty's life in New York. You know, he wanted to get more information because they didn't know much about her life Mm -hmm. after they moved to Connecticut and she stayed in New York. And Rocco said that their relationship would forever remain a mystery. So, a little bizarre. Interesting. So she just had this very, very private relationship and they didn't know him at all? I don't know if the family didn't know him, but they just didn't know about their life in New Mm. York. Yep. But it's unclear to me whether Kitty was bisexual or a lesbian, but the rest of her relationships talked about in in the books and documentaries that I looked at are with women. Okay. So it's not that surprising to me that she had a marriage to a man that yeah, ended yeah, in that's divorce. Fair. Right. Yep. Um, and going off of that, just for a bit of background, because we're talking about 60 years ago, in 1963, homosexuality was illegal under the sodomy mm. laws of every state but Illinois. Cross-dressing was also against the law. And this was all five years before the Stonewall riots. Uh, under New York law, a bar could lose its liquor license for serving a drink to a homosexual. And same-sex dancing and kissing and cross-dressing were all considered disorderly conduct. So there were underground clubs and bars that were run by organized crime, and they paid off police in order to stay in business. So the gay scene was very secretive during this time, and I think it's possible that Kitty was trying to either hide her true Mm -hmm. self or just trying to fit in or... Uh, whatever the case may be. But I thought it was really important to sort of highlight how it was because mm-hmm. I can't even fathom that time. Like, that's just no. not the time that we're currently living right. in. So thank God. Amen, sister. 
So after um, Kitty's family moved to New Canaan, she, uh, Kitty stayed in an extra room in her grandfather's apartment until she saved enough to rent an apartment of her own. She worked as a secretary at an insurance company, then a waitress, then a hostess at an Italian restaurant, and then a bartender at a pub in Queens. People said she was just the best bartender. She was, we know she was very well liked in high school. She had a great personality. They said that she was the type of bartender that she could go up to someone and cut them off and still get a good tip at the end of the night. Wow. So she just had a way about Ooh, her. That's yeah. a skill. Mm. It is a skill. So just a really great person. Now, one of the most famous photos of Kitty that actually is the, the cover photo on the book that I was reading on Kindle, it's her mugshot. <laughs> what? Which I did oh. not know that. Yeah, in the in the picture, you actually can see like a little string near her collar, and that's to hold the placard for her mugshot. But so in 1961, Kitty was tending a bar at a place called Queen's Cafe. Her girlfriend at the time, Dee, worked at another nearby bar, and there was an undercover cop who went by Wally, who came in and asked Dee if he could place a bet on a horse race. Dee took his money as a favor and called Kitty, who liked to place bets on horses just for fun. She wrote it down and said, you know, if the guy comes in, I'll do it. If not, whatever. So Wally later went to Queen's Cafe and arrested Kitty. He called her over and said, we know all about you and your betting. You know, we know exactly what you're doing. He accused her of being part of this large gambling operation. The cops thought she was part of the Genovese crime family oh. that was involved with running numbers. <laughs> she got annoyed with them and said, yeah, that's right. I take in thousands a day and I get 5%. <laughs> And then they arrested her. She's like, oh. no, I was just kidding. Can't oh. you tell by where I'm working right now? <laughs> Seriously. Yes. yes. So she was annoyed. But then as her court date approached, she got very nervous. She was oh, taking yeah. it very seriously because she didn't have a criminal record. She was arrested and charged with operating an illegal gambling enterprise. Uh, her and her girlfriend at the time were convicted and fined $50, which is about $475 in today's money, which not that serious. But again, it was it was Still a conviction. So Kitty lost her job at the mm. Queen's Cafe and went to work for Ev's 11th Hour, which is where she worked until she died. Mm. In at the ripe old age of 99, right? <laughs> yes, correct. In her sleep of natural causes. <laughs> correct. Except not, except, not. except not. Except not. Except <laughs> not. Uh, so this is in 1963, so this is two years after her arrest, Kitty was working as a bar manager at Ev's. She was working two shifts a day, typically worked the day shift from 9 to 6, um, I think as a bartender, and then she also helped with the books as a bar manager. And it was around that time that she met her girlfriend, Mary Ann Zalonko. So March 13th, Kitty met Mary Ann at one of the underground clubs called the Swing Rendezvous, which the cops called a girl-girl bar. Kitty used the pickup line, don't I know you from somewhere? <laughs> Mary Ann said she had heard better pickup lines, but <laughs> Kitty was a looker, so she went with it. They danced and had drinks together. At some point, Kitty slipped into the crowd and Marianne lost her and she was disappointed because they didn't really exchange information. Mm -hmm. Four days later, on March 17th, Marianne came home to a note on her door that said, I'll call you at seven, the phone across the street. It was Kitty. She oh. called her and they agreed to meet at a club called The Seven Steps and they spent the night together and by the morning they knew they wanted to live together. This is so romantic, but now I'm thinking like present day, one, if you even met somebody in real life because you're probably meeting them on a dating app where you're swiping mm -hmm. to get to them. 
like I, things were just so much more mm-hmm. romantic like a random letter you would think it was a stalker right now if you came <laughs> oh, home yeah. and it was like pick up this phone at 7 p.m tomorrow you'd be like i'm gonna die today today's when i die <laughs> that's <laughs> when you hear seven days <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly that's when samara comes for you <sighs> guys don't this, talk about this her. was like this is just so cute okay it um, is and i i think that Basically, when they were talking at the Swing Rendezvous, I think Marianne said, you know, where she lived, basically, and Kitty found her, which again, like nowadays, that's like a super stalker move, but it was like so romantic. So cute. I think, and it's like a love at first sight sort of thing. It's like a week later, they're ready to move in together. They lived in a motel room for two weeks before they found a one bedroom on Austin Street in Kew Gardens next door to the Long Island Railroad Station. Kew Gardens was a safe neighborhood. People left their doors unlocked. Parents let their kids play outside. There hadn't been a murder in years. And a cop said the usual complaints were kids knocking over trash cans. The apartment was one of 14 in a two-story faux Tudor building. So it looked like it was like that white and brown that you'd see in like Switzerland. Uh, There were businesses on the bottom, apartments on top. There was a laundromat, a bookstore, a coffee shop, a TV radio shop, a liquor store, a pharmacy, a pharmacy, and at the southeast end, there was a pub. Everything you need. Yeah, yeah. that sounds pretty cool. That's I want to live there. So the Q neighbor- Gardens. Q, Q Gardens. Gardens. Okay. Mm-hmm. We may want to wait before we put it in our applications. I think sounds sounds like there might be an apartment that's discounted. Yeah. <laughs> One may be available. One may be available. If I travel back to the 60s when this happened. Correct. So Kew Gardens was quiet, basically, except for Bailey's Pub, which was open until 4 a.m. most nights. As you would expect with a bar, there was often music and arguments that could be heard in the apartments. And there was also a large apartment building across the street called Mowbray Apartments. And there were fights outside the bar, mostly yelling matches, and the neighbors learned to ignore it. And they would also hear, you know, sort of domestic disputes. They'd see a man and a woman. They'd assume, you know, husband, wife Mm -hmm. or domestic. And they would, you know, turn a blind eye because that's what you did in the 60s. Oh, I feel like this is an important piece of information. It's just information. I'm just just giving you information. Okay. So... As I mentioned, other than Bailey's Pub, the neighborhood was quiet and perfect. So Marianne and Kitty moved into Kew Gardens and were very happy together there. They had disagreements, sometimes like any couple. And I had to include this because I know that you guys will appreciate Kitty as a human being more with this grim fact. After one fight that Kitty and Marianne had, Kitty went and bought Marianne a dog to apologize. (laughs) And they named him Andrew. Perfect. Oh, apology, Andrew. Yes. Oh. So I just felt like, you know, somebody that buys an apology dog, I just felt like you guys would really relate to her. I would I would accept that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. would accept a dog yes. as an apology? Marianne used to visit Kitty's family in New Canaan with her, but Kitty's family assumed they were just roommates mm-hmm. or they knew and ignored it because, again, it was the 60s. Mm-hmm. Kitty's father would ask her when she was going to settle down with a man, and Kitty's response was basically that she was making good money and didn't need a man. I like Go it. Kitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Kitty was making good money, and she was saving up and wanted to open an Italian restaurant, which she obviously never got the chance to do. So, let's talk about what happened. The night of the murder, Marianne was working at a nightclub called Club Chris. She finished her shift, had dinner, went bowling with a friend, and then went home to her and Kitty's apartment. Marianne read for a while and then went to bed around 11.30. Kitty was working that night at Ev's. 
The crowd died down around midnight, but the owner liked the bar to stay open until around three or four. Kitty went to get dinner with one of the regulars. I too often eat dinner around midnight, one o'clock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She returned before three and told the bartender he could close for the night and she headed home. So now we are talking about the early morning hours of Friday the 13th. Oh, oh never a good day. No. This is a particularly bad day. So the night of Kitty's murder, between 1.30 and 2 a.m., a man named Winston Mosley was out driving through the city hunting. Mm. Around 3 a.m., he was thinking about turning back home and was ready to do so when he noticed Kitty get into her red Fiat and he followed her home. If Kitty had closed the bar earlier or worked later or ate dinner slower, she might still be alive. Winston watched Kitty park at the Long Island Railroad Station, and he parked his car at a bus stop half a block up. He pulled on a stocking cap and hurried towards the railroad lot after her. Kitty locked her car and began walking to her apartment. The local drugstore and coffee store had been closed for hours. The second floor apartments were all dark. The street was quiet. Kitty saw a man on the other side of the lot and started walking quicker. This was around 3.20 a.m. Kitty headed towards the side of the building on Austin Street that was lit with street lamps. As she was walking, she heard footsteps behind her, and she began to run. Mm. This is like a nightmare. Yeah. This is everyone's worst nightmare. If you're walking in a parking garage, if you're walking on a street, and it doesn't even have to be dark. It could be in the middle of the Uh day. If you are alone and you hear footsteps behind you, this is worst case scenario. Because I can't do anything. Nope. I got nothing. I get, The best I can do is get away now. Yes. <laughs> I'm in does. trouble if they catch me. It doesn't get better. And I think that's one of the reasons why this murder struck so many people mm-hmm. because it's everyone's worst mm-hmm. nightmare. Yeah. So she got to the streetlight in front of the bookstore when Winston grabbed her and stabbed her twice in the back. She screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Please help me. Lights flicked on and windows slid open in the neighborhood. From one of the upper windows of the Mowbray apartments across the street, a man called down, let that girl alone, and Winston took off. He retreated towards his white sedan, parked up the street. He backed his car into the shadows so people couldn't see him or read his license plate. He took off the stocking cap and put on a fedora hat with a feather, and he waited. Oh. He wanted to finish what he started, but he was expecting to hear sirens or see people coming down to tend to Kitty. The neighbors went back to bed, and Kitty stood up. She made her way around the side of the building to get to her apartment. Had she headed in the other direction toward Bailey's, her neighbors would have still been able to see her. But she headed around the other side towards the railroad tracks, and it was dark in the back of the building, so people couldn't see her anymore and they went to bed. She was about 20 feet from the entrance to her apartment, but she felt like she couldn't make it that far, so she walked into the closer stairwell. And now this is one of those stairwells, the door opens and there's sort of, it's not a lobby, but it's like a vestibule. There's like that small entrance on the bottom, and then there's stairs that go up to apartments at the top. Yeah, okay. And I'll post pictures of, of this area on the Instagram for people to see. No one came outside, so Winston went back to look for Kitty. He thought she may have been in the train station's lobby, but it was empty. The coffee house door was locked. He tried the next door, and he found Kitty on the floor at the foot of the stairs. 
Despite punctured lungs, Kitty screamed loud enough to alert the neighbor whose apartment door was up the stairs. To stop her from screaming, Winston stabbed her in the larynx. He stabbed her breast so deep he cut two of her ribs. He was blindly stabbing her and she was trying ferociously to defend herself. Carl Ross, the neighbor whose apartment was at the top of the stairs, peeked out and saw Winston on top of Kitty stabbing her. Winston looked up at him and Carl closed the door. Carl peeked out again and it was still happening, but he never intervened. Once Kitty stopped moving, Winston raped her. When he couldn't keep his erection, he penetrated her with the knife blade he had used to stab her. Nope. Ugh. Mm-hmm. He orgasmed and then stole the $49 from her wallet before taking off. The crime lasted about 33 minutes from 3.19 to 3.52 a.m. Kitty's neighbor, Sophia Farrar, heard what happened and found Kitty in the hallway. When she tried to open the door, Kitty's body was in the way. Kitty was still conscious and thrashing, but Sophia was able to get in and calm her down. And she held Kitty as she lay dying. Sophia said she could feel the knife wounds in her back and saw that her black leather gloves were all cut up. Kitty did not survive her injuries. At 4.25 a.m., an ambulance arrived for Kitty's body. Police woke Mary Ann to tell her what happened, and Mary Ann went down to the morgue to see Kitty. She sat outside on the bench, and police said, we're going to take you home now. And Mary Ann was in such shock, she said she needed to wait for Kitty first. Oh. An autopsy performed on Kitty showed that she had been stabbed 13 times. She had nine stab wounds in front and four in the back, and she had suffered a stab wound in her throat. She had several slashes on her right hand, cuts on her fingers from defending herself. They said her stab wounds were oblique and jagged, indicating that she was twisting to defend herself and avoid each stab. Her cause of death was a bilateral pneumothorax, which means that air escaping from Kitty's punctured lungs filled her chest cavity, compressing her lungs and suffocating her. What an awful, I mean, the entire thing is awful, but what an awful way to die. Detectives interrogated Mary Ann for six hours, and they weren't asking her about the crime or anything like that. They were asking her about her relationship with Kitty. Of course they were. And Marianne admitted that they were lesbians, which she said she's always regretted because they had no right to that information. Mm -hmm. The police found it relevant because they felt that there was more jealousy in homosexual relationships than in straight relationships. So more chance for violence. But five days after the murder, police had no suspects. They'd taken Mary Ann's name off the list, even though they never told her that. And they had no leads, no murder weapon, nothing. Until they crossed paths with Winston Mosley. So I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about Winston Mosley, who is, to put it mildly, a monster. Mm -hmm. A monster. Mm -hmm. I would think so. Winston Mosley was 29 years old in 1964, so around the same age as Kitty. He worked at a business machine company called Ray Graham, punching data cards. He was married to a woman named Betty and lived with his two sons and five German Shepherds in South Ozone Park in Queens, which that's a lot of German Shepherds. A lot of dogs, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is. Winston was the only child of Fanny and Alfonso Mosley. His mother described his childhood as blissful. She said he was potty trained at four months, which I call bullshit. Mm, Yeah. And that he could read before he entered the first grade. 
His mother got him involved with painting, poetry, and music. And he was tested later in life and had an IQ of 135, which would classify him as moderately gifted. (laughs) When Winston was nine years old, his mother told him that she had a cancerous tumor in her belly and needed surgery. Fanny went to the hospital, but never came home. Oh. Oh, she didn't die. Oh. What? Where'd she go? His mother was just sick of her husband and living in Harlem. So she went to the hospital and left them to go to Michigan. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh. Wow. Okay. I can't can't imagine. I'm laughing. It's not funny at all. I can't imagine that as a child. No. Like, and I don't think that he was told that she died. It was just like she went to the hospital. And that was it. And she just didn't come back. She abandoned them. His father said he couldn't raise him alone, so he shipped Winston to Michigan to live with his maternal grandmother. And when Winston was around 10, his father told him he wasn't his real father and that he was the product of an extramarital affair, which devastated him. Yeah, really. Was that true, we assume? I believe so. Mm -hmm. At the age of 16, Winston lost his virginity to one of his aunts, who was bored with her husband. (gasps) He slept with his aunt on and off for two (gasps) years. Yeah, mm. I I wouldn't say it's a great childhood. No, I would not say blissful. No, so he was Blissless. a made he was a made monster. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it sounds like. When he was around twenty six, uh, Winston married his wife Betty in nineteen sixty one. They had a son, Mark, the next year. Winston also took in a baby who belonged to Winston's fourteen year old cousin. Betty and Winston mm-hmm. planned to adopt the baby as a favor to the family. And Winston's mother actually came back into the picture two decades after she left. And Winston not only forgave her, he invited her to move in with him and Betty. What? So ignoring how screwed up his childhood is, yeah. like it sounds like he has it together. Yep. Right now, he has a wife and kids. He's got these dogs. He's got this great fi- like life. He forgave his mom. Yep. Well, it um, sounds like he's on the right track or like a healing path, you would think. Uh-huh. like good for this guy he got his life together right yep. i don't think i didn't write this in my notes but i did find this very interesting i don't think that his father helped the situation so when after his mom had moved back to new york um his father would drive around with a handgun like looking for the mom and he wanted to protect his his dad so he would go you know give me the gun daddy i'll take care of mommy for you what and I don't think he ever meant to actually do anything, but he was trying to protect his father right. from oh. himself. Um, so oh, oh, oh. again, Same. I don't think yeah. I don't think the dad helped. Well, I'm, I'm the president. The father is setting. Well, first of all, like mom abandoned you, so I'm sure that that bakes in some issues mm-hmm. into you from an early age. But then your dad's on a crusade hunting your mother down. Mm. Yeah, yeah, not great role models. Mm-mm. Not great. So on March 18th. Winston was spotted carrying a TV out of another man's home. When confronted, Winston said he was helping the owner move. He was calm and casual, whistling as he did it. The neighbor called to ask if the owners were moving, and they said no and called the police. So I read two accounts of this. One is that the neighbor went to Winston's car and disabled it before returning to his apartment. Winston came back to his car. When it wouldn't start, he just got out and started walking. Two officers pulled up next to him in response to the call from the neighbor, and the cops frisked him and found a screwdriver in his pocket. They searched his car and found two TVs, a few small appliances, and a stack of porn pictures and magazines. He identified himself as Winston Mosley, and the police arrested him. 
The other version that I heard is that uh, when the neighbor confronted him about what he was doing, Winston took off running. Huh. The neighbor tackled him to the ground and held him until the police arrived. Was that the neighbor's account? <laughs> it may have been. Two One, very different accounts, but slightly more heroic on that account. <laughs> yep. Either way, the irony is that Winston was arrested thanks to the actions of neighbors who saw a crime and got involved. Yep. That is ironic. It is very ironic. You might say they didn't stand by. They did not. They were not bystanders. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The police interviewed Winston. He admitted stealing the TVs and appliances and said he'd done a lot more in the past year. He would bring them to his father's TV repair shop, so his dad would fix them up and sell them. The police asked him about the 30 porn photos and 40 porn magazines, but he said he stole them from an earlier burglary and he'd never buy them himself. He's too he's too good for that. I mean, the irony of that, he's like, yeah, I'm I'm above purchasing these, but stealing. Oh, that's a whole different that's story. a whole different ballgame. Let me get story. in that. So I guess police had information about a white car that was at the scene of Kitty's murder, and he drives a white vehicle. So they were asking him about it, but they weren't really getting anywhere with it. So while they were questioning him, there were several detectives that joined the interrogation. So the detectives who were interviewing him said that he had an expression, an expressionless calm about him that was just freaking people out. Hmm. Like just his delivery was concerning. The police noticed he had two small scars on his fingers. And when they asked him about it, they said he said that he had scraped himself around his house and they were like, we're not buying it. So they pressed him further and he admitted to killing Kitty. No. <laughs> that escalated quickly <laughs> yeah i'm not sure that, that could have been like six hours yeah, yeah. but basically Still. they pressed him on it and he admitted yeah, yeah. it okay. so did they was he known like having the white car because when he stole the electronics and the appliances it was a similar white vehicle that they caught him in yeah or, he yeah. was i mean he had that car with him when he was stealing the appliances okay so he was a known thief in the area that had a vehicle that matched the description that was there at when kitty died I just want to clarify, when you say a known thief, they caught him this one time stealing TVs. So he had no criminal record prior to this. He had one after this, though, right? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm trying to think, is this how... He never left the police station. (laughs) Okay. Oh, wait. This was after he killed Kitty, he stole the TVs? Yes. So Kitty was murdered on March 13th. He was caught stealing the TVs on March 18th. Okay. And taken in. My bad. My bad. And never let go. Okay. Yes. I'm with you now then. <laughs> You're good. Uh, I was thinking it was like a pre-existing theft oh, and they were no, like, no. oh, this guy yeah. in the area, this Mosley guy has a white vehicle and he's suspicious. Let's talk to him. Okay. No. And they, t- they sort of took a shot in the dark because all they had to go on was this white vehicle and these scabs on his fingers. Like, I don't really know how they put this together okay. unless they were talking to him and this, they were like, this guy's so sketchy. He must be a murderer. Maybe. He just gave off those vibes. I guess. I mean... I'll post his mugshot. He does look a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the detectives wanted to uh, wanted details to ensure that it wasn't a false confession. And the detail that confirmed he wasn't lying, he said that Kitty was wearing a menstrual pad because she was on her period. And only Marianne and the chief medical examiner knew that. Hmm. And he had also mentioned the brown billfold that he stole the money from, which the police had recovered from his employer's parking lot. There you go. Okay. But Winston didn't just confess to Kitty's murder. 
He also confessed to the murder of Annie Mae Johnson, a young housewife who was 24 at the time of her death. Annie Mae's body was found riddled with puncture wounds and partly burned. Her murder had been unsolved. Winston had parked behind her car when she got home and jumped out, pressing a gun against her stomach. Annie Mae tried to hand Winston her purse, and he shot her. Mm. Winston said Annie Mae handed him her keys and asked him to help her get into her house. Winston helped her, then shot her three to four more times. He then rolled her body into the house where he would rape her. He performed oral sex, then he lay on top of her. He was unable to get an erection and got mad. He covered her body with wadded newspapers, shoved her scarf between her legs, and lit the scarf on fire to make sure her privates burned. Then he went home to his family. Oh. And the detectives who were explaining him explaining this, he was admitting all of these gruesome details as if he was explaining what he ate for breakfast. Uh. Just laid it all out there for him. I see why he didn't leave the police station (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Yes, me too. Mm -hmm. Yes. So police were actually confused at first. They said Annie Mae hadn't been shot per the coroner. And the cops were screaming that he was lying about this. He was lying about Kitty. They were mad. They said uh, Annie Mae had been stabbed with an ice pick. And Winston basically said, coroner was wrong. I shot her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's like, I was there. (laughs) So the police actually exhumed her body. And x-rays confirmed that there were bullets in her stomach. And the coroner had mistaken small caliber bullet wounds for punctures of an ice pick. Wow. That's a big mistake. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a coroner, but (laughs) that seems like that seems like the main point of your job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think they normally x-ray bodies, but no, no, it's it's just crazy. But you don't have to worry about like extra (laughs) x-rays at that point. I just find it so crazy that they were like, you're lying. And then they're like, oh, you just solved that case extra for us. So thank you so much. (laughs) Winston also admitted to killing Barbara Kralik, who was only 15 at the time. The catch is that somebody already confessed to that murder. Alvin the Monster Mitchell had already confessed to killing Barbara. She had been found alone in her bedroom, stabbed repeatedly, close to death. Before dying at the hospital, she gave a vague description of her attacker, which seemed to resemble Alvin, a troubled teenager who she had known and had visited her often. The police cut off questioning, but it was too late. The Daily News released an article on March 22nd with the headline, To Admit Same Slaying, Baffle Cops. The assistant DA put the Alvin Mitchell case on hold. So on March 23rd, Abe Rosenthal, city editor for the New York Times, had lunch with the police commissioner, Michael Bull Murphy. Abe wanted to talk about these dual confessions. So Abe casually said... How about that double confession? What's that all about? (laughs) Murphy dodged the question, since a double confession makes the police look bad, and said, brother, that Queen story is one for the books. 38 witnesses. He was talking about the Kitty Genovese case. 38, Rosenthal asked. 38, the commissioner said. I've been in this business a long time, but this beats everything. So the police commissioner was trying to throw off the uh, the scent of the news reporters mm-hmm. on this double confession mm-hmm. by switching it over to the Kitty Genovese story. Just as an aside, regarding the double confession, it's likely that Mosley committed the crime. 
Mitchell Alvin confessed to the murder of Barbara Kralik after 50 hours of interrogation, mm. and he quickly recanted his confession. His first trial ended in a hung jury, 11 votes for acquittal, one for conviction. Winston testified at that trial, admitting to the murder. On retrial, Mitchell was found guilty and served 12 years, eight months in prison. Where Winston, was Winston during that trial? Winston refused to testify in the second trial. Hmm. Alvin insisted on his innocence throughout. And Winston had confessed to her murder with the same certainty he had with the other murders and denied committing another unsolved double homicide. So he wasn't just randomly confessing right. to crimes. So it was likely that he was the true murderer. And it just blows my mind yeah. that the state put on blinders and was like, nope, we've got this case. It's a done deal. We've got a confession and tried this guy twice. No. I mean, the fact that they went after him again after they had a hung jury, mm -hmm. 11 acquittals, because Winston testified that he murdered her. That just annoyed. I guess it annoys me. It I'm annoys annoyed me. that they can't use the previous evidence or witness statements right right it's a brand new trial That's and he wouldn't testify stupid. again it's a stupid rule yes <laughs> so going back to uh the information that the police commissioner gave abe rosenthal so their lunches are typically off the record but abe basically told him that he wanted to put a reporter on it and the commissioner agreed to sort of play ball with him so abe rosenthal assigned martin gansberg to write an article about kitty on March 27th, Kitty's murder got four columns on the front page that caught everyone's attention. Part of the article read, For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. Kitty yeah. was already two weeks old when the story ran, but it was picked up by newspapers all over the world. Kitty's Kitty. murder was two weeks old, I think. Yes. yes. Yep. She was indeed two weeks old. And K then some. <laughs> Didn't I say Kitty's murder no, was already No, you did not. <laughs> Oh, well, Kitty's murder was Check already two weeks old. <laughs> yep, we let's, got that. Let's go back. I am blown away that no one called the police, and I realize that's the point of right. what we're headed toward talking about. But again, I understand not going out to try to help. Some, what am I going to do? You know, to try to help someone. But boy, that's what I'm angry about. Yeah, especially the man Carl. Maybe was Carl his name Ross. who opened his door twice mm -hmm. and didn't do anything. We're we're gonna break this down. We're going to break this down because everyone agreed this was Kitty's murder became the symbol for urban apathy, mm -hmm. that it's dangerous to live in the city. You're alone. No, no one's one going to help you. No one cares. But the Kew Gardens residents were upset because upon investigation, the Times may have slightly exaggerated the article. Oh, mm hmm. So they got this number 38 from the witnesses that were interviewed by police. They think that's where the number came from. The prosecutor, preparing his case, interviewed the witnesses for trial. Of the 38 referenced by police and the Times article, only about five or six heard and saw enough to know that Kitty was in mortal danger. But let's be honest, even the inaction of five or six is mm -hmm. still yeah. disheartening. Yeah. It's yep. disheartening. 
We're going to break it all down, it's guys. It's terrible. I'm We're very upset break, for Kitty. We're going to break it all down. One of the witnesses, Sam Koshkin, had seen the attack from a sixth floor apartment window. He wanted to call the police, but his wife wouldn't let him. His wife, Marjorie Koshkin, said there must have been 30 calls already. That will be a very important statement. A man named Robert Moser lived on the seventh floor of the Mowbray Apartments, which again, this was this big apartment building across the street that looked down directly onto Austin Street where the first attack occurred. Moser woke up to Kitty screams between 315 and 320. He heard her say, help me, help me, and looked out the window to see a man bent over a woman striking her. He figured it was a domestic spat and yelled out, leave that girl alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I believe his actual testimony was that he said, hey, get out of there. But that leave that girl alone became like Mm -hmm. the phrase that he said. He said that Mosley ran away. Um, He watched Kitty stand up and walk to the corner drugstore toward the railroad tracks. Then she wandered around the corner out of sight and he went back to bed. A woman... Andre Pick heard Kitty's cries from the fourth floor of the Mowbray Apartments. She looked out the window and she saw Winston run away when Moser yelled out. She stood at her window frozen and she saw Winston return in a different hat. She tried to call the police, but she was so nervous she was gasping for breath. She couldn't speak. She was very French. She was unsure of her English. She had a heavy French accent and she freaked out and hung up. She said, I tried. Was this, and maybe you'll talk about this, was this before the mandatory, isn't there a mandatory callback with 911 calls? 911 did not exist. Oh, what, what year? (laughs) Well, yeah. Kitty's murder was one of the things that spurred the creation of the 911 that we know today. I will say that that changes i don't think it's acceptable by any means that no one called anything in but i will say that makes a little bit more sense mm-hmm. well it just changes it a little bit yeah. for you right because right. we know you can dial those three numbers and get a dispatcher right away right. and help is on the way exactly a little different if you have to look up a precinct number right. or yep. you know yeah they could have dialed zero back then you dialed zero got the operator you asked for the yeah. police but it wasn't the 911 okay. system that we know today. Still not acceptable, but that is incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. I so will definitely I, before the time of mandatory callback. Then. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. They didn't have yep. GPS on your cell phone to no? uh, call you back. No <laughs> iPhones. No iPhones <sighs> in 63. 64. Yeah. Although the Times article said only one person called the police after Kitty was dead. And although the police logs only showed that one person had called the cops that night, the only call they had logged was Carl Ross. Based upon the interviews, at least three people may have called, if not four. Michael Hoffman was 14 at the time. He lived in an apartment on the second floor of the Mowbray Apartments. Around 3 a.m., he woke to shouting in the streets, and he went to the window, and he heard a female crying or moaning. And now they asked him how loud this was and he said it was one of the loudest things that he had ever heard her screams woke him from his dead sleep Mm -hmm. so sam hoffman who is michael's father came into the room and asked what was happening and he said this guy just beat up a lady and ran away they watched kitty stagger around the corner drugstore out of sight looking either drunk or injured 
Michael Hoffman's father called the police in case she was hurt badly. Mm. So he says, not logged by the police, mm-hmm. but again, you know, mm-hmm. question their yep. log books. Mm-hmm. He told the police a lady got beat up and he gave the dispatcher his name, phone number, and address. And then it was over. Kitty was gone. He was tired. And him and his son went back to sleep. Detectives interviewed the Hoffmans, uh, and Sam told the police that had they come when he called, she'd probably still be alive. <sighs> yep, probably. There was another woman that called the police as well. So she says, Hattie Grund said she called the police because she saw a woman screaming help outside of a laundromat. And she said when she called, the police cut her off and said they had already gotten the call. Huh. And I was going to say earlier, I mean, Kitty did everything so perfectly right. Like the fact that she had the presence of mind to scream specifically, help, I'm being stabbed or he's stabbing me, instead of just help, help or whatever. That I could see people thinking it was a quote unquote domestic, but literally she's saying he's stabbing her. So what else could she have done? I find it so interesting, and I think this was also in a college sociology course, but they said that if you are in distress or if you're being attacked, to not yell that you're being attacked, probably because of Kitty's case, honestly, Mm -hmm. that people are less inclined if they feel that they will be in danger as well, and that your best bet is to yell something like fire because everyone wants to come out and see that and is interested and feel like they can come out and and see it without being in danger huh so yeah to not yell something like help i'm being stabbed to yell like help there's a fire and have people come out because morbid curiosity outweighs like the danger the self-preservation instincts i definitely discuss that in a sociology course (laughs) um the third person to call the cops was carl ross and the prosecutor called him a sickening man he was one of two so we're going to talk about the sickening men right now carl had been drinking most of the night around 3 30 he heard a noise outside he heard a woman's voice and cries from below his window he was skittish and didn't look hoping it would go away a few minutes later carl got scared by a noise coming from the back of the building he heard a commotion and a muffled cry He stood near his door, pacing, wondering what to do, scared. He finally peeked when his curiosity went out, and he saw Kitty laying flat on her back with a man on top of her, stabbing her with a knife. The man looked up at Carl. Carl panicked and closed his door. When the detective spoke to Carl, he tried to downplay his role. He initially told police about the screams he heard on Austin Street, But then he changed his story and said he hadn't heard any noises before he heard the noise in the hallway. He also told police he never saw anyone stabbing her, which the detectives and the prosecutor knew he was lying Mm -hmm. because he had called either a friend or a girlfriend. I saw it both ways before calling the police and told them that Kitty was being attacked. They asked him how he knew it was Kitty if he hadn't seen anything. And he pivoted and said he cracked his door just to listen a little bit. Winston Mosley disagreed with Carl's account. (laughs) He said he was lying between Kitty's legs and he heard the door open at the top of the stairs. He looked up and saw Carl Ross looking at him. And then he said, Carl shut the door quickly, peeked out again. And that was the end of it. You know, I feel like Winston is the one telling the truth through all of this. Just like a monotone, Mm -hmm. truthful confession about all of it. I'm going to go with him. Yeah. 
Carl finally admitted that he had heard and seen more than he wanted to. He was drunk and scared of the attacker. He was scared of the knife, scared of the police who would ask him who he was, what he saw, why he sounded drunk. After he had called the girlfriend or the friend, that person that he called said, don't get involved. Mm -hmm. Carl didn't accept that. He called another neighbor, Carol Tarantino, and said he should call the police, but he didn't want them coming to him in his apartment. So Carol said, okay, call from my house. So he had to get there. He didn't want to go out the hallway where Winston was with the knife. So he climbed out his window to the roof and went to Carol's apartment. Carol called another neighbor who called Sophia Farrar, who lived across the hall from Kitty and Marianne. Sophia shouted, call the police. Carl finally called at 355. Sophia. And <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Sophia is the only person in this like apartment complex that has yeah. any lick of sense in her whatsoever. Yeah. Yes. So far, wow. She's like, hello. And she is the one that ran. They said that yep. she like threw on clothes. She ran oh. out there not knowing whether like mm-hmm. where the killer was, oh. whether he was coming back. And he laid with her while she she laid with her while she was dying. Oh. Ross's famous quote when they when they really pushed him and they said, you know, why didn't you call the police sooner? Why didn't you intervene? He said, I didn't want to get involved. And that quote became infamous. Yep. Although no one really remembered who said it. Huh. Luckily for him. Yeah. After being questioned by the prosecution, Ross went home and took a bottle of vodka to Marianne's apartment and drank with her as if nothing happened. I'm so sorry for your loss that I could have probably prevented not once, not twice, but on three separate occasions. Right. And I believe that Marianne did not know how much Carl had seen until much later on. It's awful. Poor kitty. Carl is, um, I don't want to say innocent. Carl looks better compared to the other guy whose name was Joseph Fink. Joseph Fink was an assistant superintendent of the Mowbray Apartments. He worked nights and ran the elevator in the building. And his work post gave him a crystal clear view of the Austin Street sidewalk. He told the prosecutor that he saw Winston stab Kitty in the back from about 50 yards away. He could see the knife blade and he could see that it was shiny. He saw the entire attack. He said he thought about going to get his bat downstairs but instead he went downstairs where he had a cot, lamp, and telephone, and he went to bed because he'd had a long day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. He never called the cops. He went, he went to sleep. Also, so let's put aside the fact that for another human, you can't call the police and help her. Are you not afraid or concerned yeah. in the least? Like, I don't think I could sleep well knowing that someone was out there stabbing people right and i think that's the concerning part like if you were alone and you were on the street and somebody attacked you and you were screaming for help like you would hope that someone hears you or or calls the police like that Mm -hmm. is the baseline of assistance just call someone else to help yeah i would love if someone would get involved but i understand if they don't and just please help me in some way right and and so so this guy they were like he watched the whole thing Mm. and did absolutely nothing nothing at least carl 
Carl was drunk. He was scared. He yeah, was right, nervous. Right. He was like, what should I do? Called someone, like, should I call the cops? They were like, right, no, right. don't. And then he ended up calling the cops. Joseph was like, eh, I was tired. It was a long day. I could have been, I could, I could have grabbed my bat, but I didn't feel like it. So I went to bed. How do you just like, how do you just like go to sleep That's after what that? I'm saying. I don't know. I, I can't imagine it. Cause to Laura's point, why, why would you just automatically assume this was targeted and it was right. just to attack this one particular person? Like, wouldn't yeah. you think like, oh shit, maybe he saw me because I'm half a football field away from him and he's going to come over to me next. Mm-hmm. I'm also pretty sure if I saw, if I saw like an animal attack another animal, I would be disturbed enough to not immediately go to sleep i will say i literally put down the book that i'm reading on the toy box killer next on my nightstand and then you know rolled over and went to sleep last night so <laughs> like a baby i don't know if i can totally agree with that but you didn't witness the toy no. box murder no it did paint a picture in my mind but <laughs> a mental no. picture I, I don't know that i wouldn't get involved i i'm pretty sure you would, would get, get involved you would call i have no cops. question i would call 100 percent. okay i wouldn't run down there but i would throw something down oh. and hit him i would throw something See, at that's him. smart that's mm. good this guy was eye level though he was in he was in the lobby colby's got a bow and arrow <laughs> i don't have a bow and arrow but i was just thinking like like the vases behind marina yeah. and just throw one of those at him and hit him with it or just over his head I don't know. I would get involved, but we yes. discussed this. This yes. is why I will die early at some point in time, but I will die trying. You'll die. You'll <laughs> die a hero, Colby. <laughs> or like a, oh, she missed it by that much. <laughs> so close. This is plastic. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> but so the prosecution interviewed these witnesses. And again, like Carl and Joseph looking real bad yep. among the witnesses, but they didn't want to focus on the neighbors. They didn't want to distract the jury. They only called five out of the 38 people who were ear or eye witnesses. And those people did not include Carl Ross or Joseph Fink for obvious reasons. Winston was charged with burglary and two counts of homicide, one for Annie Mae Johnson and one for Kitty. His trial started on June 8th, 1964, which is crazy to me because Kitty was murdered on March 13th. Yeah. So you're talking less than three months after the murder, they've got him to trial. Like, that's, that's not a thing anymore. Damn. Or that's not a thing in Connecticut anyways. But <laughs> Winston tried to put on an insanity defense. Uh, basically, you know, he's admitting to these murders. Like They're trying to say, like, only a madman would admit to these extra murders that he wasn't caught on. And the jury didn't buy it. Uh, and they found him guilty. Good. The judge said, quote... I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see this monster, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. Damn. That probably wasn't true. (laughs) (laughs) So during the penalty phase, the judge would not allow any psychiatric evidence in mitigation of a death sentence. And the judge said that the jury had rejected his insanity defense and found him sane enough to be guilty during the trial. So that ship had sailed. The defense attorney's son believes that the judge was building reversible error into the case. That way, the public would be happy and Mosley could still escape death. Excuse me. Yes, please ask your questions. We have questions. Yes. yes. Um, Go ahead. What is what is it? Reversible, reversible error. error. Reversible error. So the reversible error that they were saying he built into the case. So he was actually against the death penalty. 
he was trying to say that he's for it. This guy's a monster. He's mm-hmm. trying to appease the public because the public was so mad. But he made a decision in the case, not allow- allowing the psychiatric evidence, that they're saying he knew would cause a reversal on appeal. So that he came out looking the best in the end. So basically, he told the public, listen, I would pull the switch on this guy if I could. Like, let's sentence him to death. Get him to death. No psychiatric evidence. Screw you. This guy's super guilty. He's totally sane. Knowing that not letting that evidence in, it would get reversed later on. So the guy wouldn't be sentenced to death. But he would be in the newspapers being a pro capital punishment judge against this defendant. Without actually doing it. Without actually doing it. Wow. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. And that actually is exactly what happened because in 1967, the New York Court of Appeals ruled that he should have allowed the psychiatric evidence in and his sentence was commuted from death to life in prison. So the judge got exactly what he wanted. The judge is quoted in the papers as saying, I'll pull the switch myself, but he made this reversible error decision. And, you know, how many people remember that when the time came? Just the lawyers. Yeah, just just the nerdy lawyers <laughs> looking up those articles. So it gets a little wild. So 1967 is when they commuted his sentence. On March 12th, 1968, Winston Mosley told a prison guard that he was experiencing some discomfort. The Attica physician found that Winston had a meat can, like like one that holds spam, three inches wide and an inch and a half high uh, in his rectum. Mm-hmm. As one does. Yes. Pain. That happens to the best I of us. See, yep. I see the pain. Yep. They tried to remove it under gener- generalist anesthesia inside the prison, but the doctor couldn't get it out and he was bleeding a lot. So they had to send him to a local hospital. In fact, they were like, we don't even know how he got this up I there. Was, like he would be in excruciating pain. I'm just trying to think of how one gets a spam can there. You need, you need a lot of lube. And he was in prison. Where, where did it come from? Carefully. But where did he get the spam in the first place? I think you could buy commissary. He got he got the he got the meat can. There's no from um, commissary. Fat. (laughs) Do you think? (laughs) Do you think the man may have used the spam as lube? Well, that's what I was thinking. And then I was thinking the grease. Any yeah, or I don't even think you need to cook it. I think just as is. Guys, can we do our research? Let's go buy a can of Spam from the grocery I'm store. I'm good. Really I'm actually good. You're good? Okay. <laughs> also, I have some in my closet. Inquiring my minds need it. to know. It's weird. <laughs> like a weird thing that my husband likes. But anyways. Just to be clear, just the Spam. Eat. No, no. Just to eat the Spam. <laughs> okay. The cans are recycled. Just to be clear. <laughs> to be crystal clear. So he was transferred to this local hospital. Six days after undergoing surgery, he was ready to be transported back to prison. Two prison guards arrived to bring him back, and an officer brought him to a room to change into his prison uniform when Winston lunged at the guard and took off running out the nearest exit. Winston found an unoccupied house near the hospital to hide out. He found some canned food, a pocket knife, and a forty-five caliber revolver. Oh, I, I was reacting at the canned food. Yeah. <laughs> Like, excellent oh, joy. in case i need another escape plan <laughs> also like how sore are you after six days yeah. of undergoing surgery that you're like fighting people off and uh, running as fast as you can th- yeah no and the odds <laughs> that he'd find an unoccupied house <laughs> that right has a door. gun 
Yeah. It's oh, very lucky. Perfect. He was very, very lucky. happy about that. It's like the Dane Cook when you leave your grocery cart in the store and you're worried someone's going to grab it this and is come exactly- up and be like, jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> this is everything that I needed to buy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. After three days in the house, Winston called an employment service with the house phone and requested that they send a maid. What? The balls on this guy. He's like, excuse me, this abandoned home that I found, it's filth. Who am I? Not important. This place is disgusting and it's beneath me. (laughs) This looks like the place of someone who would purchase porn. (laughs) Not me. I steal the shit. I would never purchase this. Much like this house. Oh my God. Filth. Yeah. Well, so he requested the maid for more nefarious reasons. Oh. The maid, Zella Moore, was sent to the house. And when she went into the house, Winston threatened her with a gun and then he raped her. I hate Winston. I'm going to go on Winston sucks. Winston does kind of suck. He really sucks. He warned her not to tell anyone and he let her go. Okay. At least she got to leave. Yeah. Did she report it? So she was too nervous to call the police, so she called the homeowner, whose name was Janet Kulaga. Her parents had lived in the home until her dad passed, and Zella told Janet something funny was going on in the house. Basically said, like, the sheets were weird, like, it looks like someone's living there, something's weird, something weird is going on, I'm not going back. So Janet, uh, on, this is March 21st, around 7 a.m., Janet called the police she said something funny is going on in her house and she wanted an officer to meet her there. Police told her there was a shift change coming up and to call back at 830. Oh no, did Janet go by herself to the she house? She sure did. No, oh, Janet. With her <laughs> husband, Matthew. Oh, oh okay. okay. Better. It's not going to... Um, nope, I'm not going to no. say it's better yet because Marina's face says it may <laughs> not be. It still ends poorly. It still like, ends don't poorly. Don't do that. Don't do that. Like, what's it matter? Let let your house be weird for an mm-hmm. hour and a half longer. So, instead of waiting, Janet and her husband, Matthew, go to the house. Uh, they enter, and Winston's standing at the top of the stairs, pointing the gun at them. He sits him down. He takes $31 out of Janet's purse and Matthew's wallet, and then he brings him upstairs. He forced Matthew to strip down to his underwear and then gagged and tied him. He led Janet to another room where he gagged and tied her up, raped her, and then left taking the Kulaga's car. And before he left, he basically like patted Janet on the head and was like, I hope that nobody else ever does this to you. <laughs> like, have a great what? life. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. The Kulaga's called the police and ID'd Winston as the man in the house from photos. Winston ended up at another apartment with a woman named Mary Kay Patmos and her five-month-old child. While he was there with them, another woman, Gladys Costanzo, from a local church nursery, showed up to the apartment, and he dragged her in, too. Winston told Gladys to go get him a car because he knew that the Kulaga's car would be tagged. Um, And he said, and if you tell anyone, I will kill Mary and the baby. Oh. Gladys left and called her husband when she got to the church, and her husband called the FBI. Within two hours, the apartment was surrounded with cops that were all sort of hiding in the bushes and around the building. Gladys returned with a car and put the keys on the roof, but Winston sensed that it was a trap. After a while, the FBI called the Patmos apartment, and Winston let in one agent, Special Agent Welch. 
while Agent Welch and Mosley were talking, Mary and her baby snuck out the back window and Mosley was pointing a gun at Welch's head the whole time they were talking and Welch had a gun in his pocket pointed at Mosley. Oh my God. It's this like a movie. It's like a movie. Insane. It's a movie. The also, ma- just a shout out to that cop who literally sacrificed like just his safety and well-being to let them go because he turned the attention to himself just... And somebody asked him, they're like, how did you talk to him for that long? And he said, very carefully. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Like insane. Um, They actually talked for about an hour before Winston finally put his gun down and surrendered. Wow. Mm -hmm. That guy's an excellent hostage negotiator. (laughs) Yeah. He mostly went back to prison in Attica. um, And then he said he was he was turning his life around. In 1977, he earned a bachelor's degree in sociology, becoming the first convicted murderer in state history to earn a college degree from his prison cell. And that same year, an op-ed was published in the Times with the headline, quote, I'm a man who wants to be an asset. He claimed credit for bringing attention to an important problem. He said that the crime was tragic, but he was urging members of society to come to the aid of its members in distress or danger. He said it's necessary to sometimes get involved. He said the man, this is a quote, the man who killed Kitty Genovese in Queens in 1964 is no more. I'm a man who wants to be an asset to society. He sort of uh, left out the part that he then devised a scheme to escape prison, left prison, uh-huh. raped two more people, held people hostage, and then oh, went back. Yeah. Like he left all that out. Yep. He was just like, he's like, I want to be a new man, starting now, <laughs> like right, right now, right now. And he's like, I want to be an asset by not doing terrible things. You know how you could have been an asset, Winston. You could have been an upstanding member of society. It's like Stop it's like raping and killing people. Literally, it's like someone who's trying to sell umbrellas, pouring water on your head, and being like, "You should have had an umbrella." That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. I was thinking about it the whole time. I can dig it. That. I like it. Thanks. I like it. Um, and he also uh, he then he started changing his story. He said that he actually killed Kitty because she cut him off in traffic and was yelling racial slurs at him. So he was trying Please. to, you mm-hmm. know take less responsibility for her murder and then this one i'm sorry this one this one is like an inmate classic he said that he deserved credit for exercising restraint and for leaving zella moore and janet kulaga alive after he raped them because he could have killed them too but that is like a like that's a classic inmate move like being like i deserve credit for not committing worse crimes like i only murdered five people that guy killed 20 like yeah he's so much worse than me right like it doesn't make it any better like it's just congratulations i guess (laughs) congratulations maybe you can sleep tonight uh mosley had his first parole hearing in 1984 which was denied he was denied parole 18 times before his death in march 2016 at 81 years old wow 2016 yeah, which can you imagine though, like thinking that you deserve parole, like aside from the murders, I'm not saying like people can be reformed and people do make changes in their life, but not only did you murder people, you escaped from prison and committed yes. additional crimes. Not not just burglary, not just like exactly. breaking and entering, like rape. 
Like yeah. you mm-hmm. committed like another atro like more atrocious crimes yes. while you were out. Why would you ever be paroled? It wasn't like a crime of necessity. Like right. I broke out of here Stealing and I, cars. I need things right to be able to help my case. This was like opportunity presented he, itself and he couldn't help it no and he tried to justify it he right. killed them right right so talking about the changes that come from that came from kitty's murder we talked about 911 mm. some sources indicate that kitty's murder essentially spawned the creation of the 911 system that we know today the history seems to be a little bit more complex than that but it seems that that was the catalyst that forced action yep. by officials because up until the late 1960s there was no centralized number for people to call in case of an emergency if someone needed to contact the police or the fire department they called the nearest station or they had to dial zero to reach a telephone operator and then be connected in 1956 the national association of fire chiefs recommended that cities employ a single number for people to call when disaster struck And then in 1965, the Times reported that Kitty's case spurred the push from New York police and politicians for this single emergency number. Three years later, the Federal Communications Commission and Bell System teamed up and selected 911 as the emergency number, which was announced in January 1968. They chose 911 because they wanted a number that was short, easy to remember, and unique and 911 had never been used as an area code or service code before. Mm. And this is also back when rotary dial telephones were still the primary type of phone, so the shorter the number, the better. And I'm guessing the 9, because I think the area codes went up. I'm guessing. Don't quote me on that, but I'm guessing. And then, so you hit the 9, but then it's only the 1, so it's quick. Right. Mm -hmm. Quicker. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. And because of Kitty's case, many states also enacted Good Samaritan laws, which encouraged witnesses to stop crime or to at least to report it. Um, California, Florida, Massachusetts, and seven other states passed duty to aid laws, obliging citizens to help others in need if they could do it without putting themselves in danger. I think that number is higher now, but I actually don't think that those laws are actually enforced. Mm. Um, How could you? I mean, that's a hard one. Right. But the most interesting thing, in my opinion, to come from Kitty's murder is it inspired research by psychologists in fields that barely existed in the years prior, specifically urban psychology, social psychology, and the study of pro-social behavior. The most well-known psychological principle that stemmed from Kitty's murder is the bystander effect, Mm. which has also been called Genevieve's syndrome. Oh, the bystander effect was first studied and popularized by two sociologists at Ohio State University who conducted a variety of experiments and published a report in 1968 called the unresponsive bystander. John Darley and Bib Latane began their research with smaller, low risk experiments. They asked random New Yorkers for directions and they threw Frisbees around Grand Central (laughs) Station most bystanders were suspicious and pretended not to notice these individuals, which, I mean, we would too. Mm-hmm. Then they stepped it up. They created scenarios where it appeared that someone who intervened may be at risk for physical injury or death. What they found was that people were more likely to act if there were less bystanders or less perceived bystanders. 
So the more oh. people around, the less responsibility any one person felt to act. Can I give a stupid example of this? You bet. Email at work. I learned you're not supposed yes. to email like 15 people and be Nobody like, Nobody responds. Hey, can anyone mm-hmm. do blah, blah, blah? You put like one or two people or call them out. So that's a, obviously a very, very stupid example. But it makes me think of that. And then it makes me also think of the fact that you say perceived bystanders. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, who knows who was awake and who was home yep. in that scenario. But if I'm sitting there, was that called the person who was like the wife, right? Who yeah, said who said 30 other people must right. have called. Yep. Yep. Wow. So they also staged a scenario in which a thief went and stole an envelope full of money from a classroom desk. They found that most of the witnesses in the room pretended that nothing had happened. In fact, people that had clearly watched the theft occur specifically said they had not seen anything. (laughs) In another study, participants were told different things about how many other people were involved in a certain scenario. So participants were in a alone in a room waiting for instructions and some were told that there were four other participants one other participant and some were told that they were the only participant while giving instructions the instructor pretended to suffer a seizure the instructor actually said i'm gonna die help there was an assistant placed in the hallway so all the people had to do to help the instructor was just walk outside and tell the assistant Mm -hmm. that someone needed help For those who were told they were the only participant, 85% told the assistant that the instructor needed help. For those who were told there was one other participant, 62% acted. The rate plummeted for those in a group. For those who were told there were four other participants, only 31% acted. What? What's the reasoning in this scenario? There's no danger to you yeah. as the participant. Why wouldn't you act? Uh, it is. What are you doing? Sitting there watching? I mean, you're not like in your apartment closing your shades and by yourself. You're in the same room, right? Well, so I think it's over a speaker. So you can't okay. see the instructor. Uh, you're okay, hearing okay. it come in. Because I think that distancing is very important. But Works again, it's, Carl. it's the distribution yeah, of yeah. responsibility yeah. in wow. people's minds. They think, well, there's four other participants. Somebody else must have told them. I and Now, I do happen to think that Colby and I and you as well are built a little differently. But I cannot fathom like... I mean, so in that email example or in the reporting example, I'd be like, hey, you might have already like we get now yet another apparently too many work examples, but um, and another stupid one. But if you if somebody makes a mistake in an email or mistake on a meeting, I'll send a note and say, hey, you probably got this from 40 other people. But just (laughs) letting you know. And that's an email mistake. So how I mean, it's just amazing to me. I know it's fact. I've heard about this, but I can't. I'd love to believe I'm different. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I I would love to believe I'm different as well. And I will give you a real life example. I was driving home on I-84. There was a car stopped on the side of the road, like almost like inching into the lane, but not really. They were still sort of in the shoulder and people were slowing down and all of a sudden like a hat flies out the window the door opens and two guys roll out into the the traveling travel no the breakdown lane nope fast lane 
Oh, fast lane. oh, you're all the way on the yeah, left. Yeah, all the side. way on the left. Oh. Sorry, all the way on the left. They they roll into the fast lane on the left hand side, and they are beating the shit out of each other. <gasps> and people are swerving around, trying not to hit them. And there are other people there. And I'm like, oh my god, should I call the cops? And I'm like, a hundred other people must have called already, yep. right? So me, I'm knowing that it's not the state police. I feel weird calling 911 because I'm like, is it a true emergency? Like, right, is right. that weird? They're going to ask me who I am, where mm-hmm. I am. I'm like, I'm, I don't know if I looked at the mile marker. Like, uh. so I did look up the state police like barracks number to call a number versus 911, right. which in hindsight, I probably just should have called 911 because there are people fist fighting in the middle of ID4. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tried calling the barracks number. I got an automated message. Picked these options. Couldn't get anybody. I was like in Farmington and I was like, I tried. I'm yeah, like, I, somebody else yep. must have called. Yep. I tried. They must be done fighting at this point. Like that is a, that is the Kitty Genevieve's yep. murder. I yep. am built differently because I did call 911 in a situation mm-hmm. like that. I was driving into work late one day, like maybe it was 930 or 10 o'clock and somebody had rolled over on the highway a little ways. It was 84 as well, heading into Hartford and somebody had rolled over and I saw multiple other cars like veer off the road and I saw people get out of the cars and run over to them. So I was like, I'm not going to get out because these people yep. are going to pull them out. I'm going to call 911. Yep. Yep. So I called. They didn't give a shit who I was. They just said yep. like, where are you on the highway? Like, is anybody hurt? And I was like, I'm shaking. I didn't even see it happen. Yeah. Like this person's definitely upside down in their vehicle. 84 eastbound. I just passed exit like 33 or something like that. I don't know. I think they go up in that direction. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I did. But I don't know what happened to that person. Yep. That's mm. what's wrong with me is I want to know like the follow up of it. I feel like I'm somewhere in between both of you because I remember right. It was when I was like I was like 17. I had just gotten my license and it was back in New Hampshire and I had come around a corner and there was a car pulled over and a motorcycle on its side and a person on the road. And so I do an assessment and figure out like has somebody else can I see like if I see someone pulled over and I see them on a cell phone I'm like they're good they're They're fine if I see now again when I see other people I'm like all right they literally have pulled over they're with them they're fine so this one nobody else had pulled over I pulled over at the same time as someone else and the other person called 911 but I I had pulled over and then I was like I guess I have nothing to do I didn't see (laughs) it I mean I didn't see the accident I didn't see anything but I'm somewhere in between because right but it does make it like if I have assessed, so it's the, almost the perceived bystander. Right. If I've assessed that other people have done it, and I could for sure be wrong, then I think that I'm fine and I don't need to do anything. Mm-hmm. So it's so fascinating. I think that I am so paranoid that it would happen to me and nobody would call or mm. report it that I am like going the extra mile because if I were in that situation, I would yeah. want somebody to say it. I right. will say for sure after this, the, poor, the police are going to be like, you need to chill. <laughs> the person was going through the Dunkin' Donuts drive They're going to be like, Laura, Relax. everything is fine. They live here. <laughs> it's like I tell my dogs, it's yeah. not your yard. Oh my gosh. Relax. <laughs> I do think it's hard though because I... I'm just now I'm reflecting on every weird experience I've ever experienced <laughs> and trying to figure out if I should have called 911. And my husband and I were going to dinner the other night. We pulled out onto the main road near us and we saw a man. Now, people walk down that road, but not frequently. And it, there aren't sidewalks there. It's not it's not a pedestrian road. 
and there was a man walking on the side like he wasn't in the road but he was definitely like kind of struggling like we kind of assumed mm-hmm. he was drunk and now i'm reflecting like now that's not it's not a super fast road it's fast but like you know he wasn't in the road but there was something wrong where's the line like should i don't think i should have called obviously i didn't but right now i'm questioning everything but these studies i mean you're not talking about close calls in these studies okay, like true people are saying yeah help me i'm dying yeah okay. and then people are like no somebody like, else called no nah. nah, they're called yeah. so wow. you should you should feel okay, okay. about yeah all right not calling about a random drunk person the drunk person would be like bruh well that's, really? again, yeah. that's literally what i think i don't know i don't know but i'm with you colby like i think what if i mean not in that scenario hopefully i'm not drunk walking down the <laughs> yeah. road but i i would hope that someone would err on the side of i should help this person yeah I, you know ugh, ugh. this is a scary topic yeah, it's not great. It's hard. It's not great. And and now we're in a different era too where if you do need help, you're going to be nervous as to who pulls over to help you. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. who comes out to help you. Yep. I mean, that's like a whole nother level of terror. I, to that point, I saw again 84 just really should we should take other roads <laughs> yeah. um, but it was coming out of hartford so there's a lot of um there's not a big breakdown lane where i was and somebody had a car was pulled over and stopped with his hazards and then you know we're in traffic so i'm going slowly and someone i drove past that and i see a woman walking and i thought to myself geez i, I was all the way in the left lane so i couldn't really get over anyway but i was thinking like man that's a really scary like we weren't going that fast on the highway but that's scary she probably ran out of gas she's probably walking to the next exit which is not a great spot you know and i thought ever so briefly to myself geez i should like to see if i can make my way over and see if she needs a ride and then i thought to myself what if what i can't risk yeah that it's what if it's somebody who could take advantage of me or or harm me or what some crazy thing it's all a scheme and they have someone waiting and unfortunately, that's what you think. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, it. maybe this is why all the murders happened in the 60s and 70s. Just saying. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe we should be careful and cautious. I don't know that I would have let that person into my car either. I probably yeah. would have just called somebody and not yeah. inserted myself into harm's And what's way. funny right. is that person probably would have been like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. you. You're they a murderer. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. They would have thought you're a murderer. Yeah. And you're like a thinking, super sketchy yeah. woman pulled over and tried to pick me up. And <laughs> it was so weird. good point. I didn't even think of that. Oh, because here I'm like, I'm not a murderer. <laughs> I know. You know that. I will say I would, be, I would be much more comfortable if it was a woman because yeah. women tend not to commit violent crimes against yeah. people that they don't know we we tend to be very vindictive against yeah. those that we do know who have wronged us <laughs> so i feel more comfortable doing it for a woman yeah, than, yeah. than a man any of mm. any age any race like i yeah. just women commit not violent crimes against those that they don't know so I, I, and i could probably take her that's, you could. that's what they want you yeah. to think <laughs> and well I we get away with a partner it. yeah we get away with it more that's the thing we're just that good yeah yeah <laughs> We've gone off the rails yeah. here. Yes. What are we talking about? Bring us back to Kitty. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the sociology studies. Yes. Uh, so what this study found is that basically the fact that there were so many, quote, witnesses to Kitty's murder actually worked against her and mm-hmm. was a bad thing. Um, Darley and Latane found that if one person sees trouble, he'll feel all the guilt for not acting. Yep. yep. But if others are present, responsibility is diffused and the finger of blame points less directly at any one person. So true. Applies to the email example, too. Mm -hmm. Like nobody else responded. (laughs) Yeah. And the question here, which we've sort of discussed, is have we learned 
Now that we've identified the bystander effect and can self-reflect mm-hmm. on the study, have more people taken action? Kevin Cook's book gave some disturbing examples that say, absolutely not. Oh, I knew it. In 1984, Cheryl Araujo was gang raped in a bar while others watched. <gasps> In 2008, Angel Torres was run over by a car in Hartford, Connecticut, and ignored by scores of drivers and bystanders, some of whom told police that they essentially didn't want to get involved. Two-year-old Axel Cassian was stomped to death by his father trying to get the demons out while a crowd in California looked on, including a fire chief. The dad even left mid-attack to go turn on the hazard lights on his truck, and no one helped the boy at all. The fire chief's fiance finally called 911, and the father was shot in the head, but the boy was already dead by that time. Oh, my God. A woman named Esmond Green collapsed in an ER waiting room at a hospital in Brooklyn. She'd been dying on the waiting room floor for more than an hour, and hospital staff walking by ignored her presence. I, that one's inexcusable. I know that these are facts, and I cannot believe them. I cannot. I I can't believe it. I know. But, I mean, would you believe Kitty Genovese that somebody opened the door, saw her being stabbed, and no. just closed the door? No. And panicked? And no. I can understand the calling. panic, but it was just, you know, I just, wow. Wow. Yep. A 15-year-old California schoolgirl was gang raped during homecoming while other students watched. And Hugo Tail Yaks of Queens was stabbed in the chest while saving a woman from a knife-wielding thug in 2010. And he was bleeding to death while pedestrians walked by, one pausing to snap a cell phone photo. That's so that's my, what I'm more afraid of in my, these days. My thought is, unfortunately, now that everyone has a cell phone, yep. I actually think that someone is more likely to pull out their phone and film a crime yep. for TikTok or Instagram before calling the police, which mm-hmm. I believe is the present day urban apathy. I couldn't yep. agree more. That's exactly. Have you seen that Black Mirror episode where they all, oh, I'm going to have to look up the episode, but it's the one where they're all videoing and watching on their phones. Oh, is it White Deer? Of, I think so. That's like the only one I've yeah. ever watched. Oh, and I thought funny. it was so messed up. But it's so, I love those It was episodes. great at they're the end so when they dropped accurate. the twist. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so go watch that one because it's exactly it's exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I really, I really think that that's true in the most disturbing way. I was trying to think of if Kitty Genovese happened today, and I really can imagine yep. all of the photos posted to social media, all the videos of him stabbing her and running away, and her. You know, maybe somebody calls nine one one, but how many people whip out their phones to take a video first? More than call nine one one for sure. Yeah. And and video it first. I mean, like we see videos all the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and my husband's like, "Why are you recording this? Like, shouldn't yep. you be on the phone with the police?" Like, it's. And I think the underlying, besides the whole likes and the grip that social media has on us, it is ultimately the bystander effect because someone else is going to come in and do right. it. Someone else, will, yep. someone else will take care of it. Right. I'm recording it for the police. Somebody yeah. else is calling nine one one. I'm sure. Wow. So that was kitty genovese and speaking of instagram i'm just kidding (laughs) speaking of the grip that social media has on people oh that was good though that was good thank you guys if you are enjoying listening to grim please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes 
We love all the love and support. It keeps us going, guys. Makes our day. You don't even know. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Laura's dancing. Looks like she wants to say something. No? No, I just, okay. I like the end of it. You just have a nice <laughs> ring to the to the platforms. That's all I was dancing to it. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, which shout out to our listener who emailed us a mm-hmm. book suggestion. We love you so much. Thank you. Oh, yes. really Thank you. It. You made our day. Yes. From South Africa. Uh, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com and listen, learn, and stay alive. Until next time, Grimlins, we love you. Bye.